0: Four years ago today, R.C. Sproul passed into glory. A beloved pastor, theologian, Bible commentator, and apologist, Sproul impacted millions of Christians around the world through his sermons, his lectures, his articles, and his books. As Johnny Erickson Tata has said, R.C. was a masterful theologian who could so easily squeeze sweetness from what others considered dry doctrine. His sermons and books beautifully adorned the gospel, but so did his life. In honor of R.C.'s legacy, today we're pleased to share the final chapter from Stephen Nichols' biography of Sproul, released earlier this year called R.C. Sproul, A Life. In this chapter, Nichols recounts Sproul's final months, reflects on his enduring legacy for American Christianity, and shares little-known anecdotes from his life, like the time he was quoted in a movie about vampires or went golfing with Alice Cooper. Let's get started.
1: Chapter 11, Doxology Theology Leads to God, Thomas Aquinas The final events of R.C.'s life seem as if they were scripted. His final Ligonier conference was on Luther and the Reformation. His final question and answer session ended with an answer that included Luther, the Gospel, Isaiah chapter 6, God's holiness, and the words, Here I Stand. His final two sermons expound the glory of Christ and the greatness of salvation. His final sentence of his final sermon calls for awakening. His final breath drawn as the Highland Hymn concluded on the CD player in the hospital room. Pure poetry. That uncanny finality extended to the day after he died and the episode broadcast on Renewing Your Mind on December 15, 2017. That week, Renewing Your Mind was running the last five teaching episodes from the Epic Teaching Series Foundations. The last episode, number 60, is The Believer's Final Rest. Here's how Lee Webb, host of Renewing Your Mind, introduced the broadcast. It is by God's providence that we are airing this program today on The Believer's Final Rest. This program has been on our broadcast schedule for several months. And when we scheduled it, we had no idea that we would be sharing with you the sad news that our founder and dear friend, Dr. R.C. Sproul, has gone home to be with the Lord. We are mourning his loss here at Ligonier, but what a comfort to know that Dr. Sproul is today, right now, enjoying the presence of Christ face to face. He is enjoying the very reality that he teaches in this lesson. Many were saddened by the news of R.C.'s passing. They were mourning the loss of their teacher, but even at his death, he was teaching his beloved Ligonier students, teaching them how to react and how to respond to his own death. In the course of the episode, R.C. quotes First John chapter 3, verses 1-3. through
2: Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Now, we've looked at this from another perspective elsewhere. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure.
1: Then R.C. expounds
2: This text, I think, is one of the most important eschatological texts, if not the most important eschatological text in all of the New Testament. Because what it promises the believer is the zenith of the felicity that we will enjoy in heaven, which is found in what is called technically in theology the visio dei or the beatific vision. The first phrase, visio dei, simply means the vision of God. Which vision is called the beatific vision? Why? Well, you may not be familiar with the term beatific. But you are familiar with the term beatitude. The beatitudes are those sayings that are recorded in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus begins each of the beatitudes with the prophetic oracle of blessing. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and so on. That is a promise of blessedness. A degree of happiness that transcends any pleasure or any kind of earthly happiness when God gives blessedness to the soul of a person. That is the supreme level of joy and fulfillment and of happiness than any creature can ever receive. And that is called, this blessedness is what is in view here when we talk about the beatific vision. A vision that is so wonderful, a vision that is so fulfilling, that the vision itself brings with it the fullness of the blessing.
1: R.C. longed for this delight of our souls, as Jonathan Edwards put it. We will see God aglow with unvarnished, unveiled radiance. R.C. closed with these words.
2: But for all eternity, God has established this place which is the end and the destiny of all of His people. It doesn't get any better than that. And again, every aspiration, every hope, every joy that we look forward to will be there and then some in this wonderful place. Our greatest moment will be the moment that we walk through the door and leave this world of tears and of sorrow this valley of death and enter into the presence of the lamb
1: the day before this aired rc walked through the door from the here and now to eternity and he entered his rest the teacher was dead long live the teaching that is on earth in heaven rc has joined the seraphim worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the lamb upon the glassy sea he is still proclaiming the holiness of God. O Rare On the grave of Ben Johnson in Westminster Abbey is etched simply, O Rare. That could be said of R.C. John MacArthur eulogized R.C. as a friend, as a defender of the faith, and as this era's greatest reformer. In the pages of World Magazine, Joel Bells noted, R.C. Sproul was an enormously gifted scholar communicator whose nuanced approach drove us all to a deeper commitment to the truth of the gospel, who cannot revel in Sproul's magnificent grasp of Scripture as well as his compelling teaching style. He was as carefully bounded by the Scripture as any preacher most of us have ever heard, although within those bounds, he was also a fully liberated Renaissance man. It's a combination I don't expect to see ever again in my lifetime. R.C. was also eulogized in USA Today, The Washington Post, and his beloved hometown's Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He was eulogized and remembered across major Christian news outlets, magazines, and blog posts. Crossway, publisher of a number of his books, asked people to share their response to the prompt, I am grateful for R.C. Sproul because... In a few days, they had over 17,000 responses from all over the world. They published 50 of them on their website on December 19, 2017. Here's a sampling. He demystified theology for me from someone in Ghana. He helped me have a more biblical view of God from someone in Ohio. His ministry has taught me how to love God from someone in New Mexico. His unrelenting pursuit of preaching the inerrant Bible and the doctrines of grace from someone in China. His clarity, even the tough stuff, amazing, from someone in Northern Ireland. He was faithful to the end from someone in Scotland. R.C. wrote over 100 books, produced hundreds of hours of teaching series, and left behind a vault of sermons. He is quoted at the end of a vampire movie starring Christopher Walken, The Addiction the quote, we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. One of his quotes appeared in Bartlett's familiar quotations, sin is cosmic treason. Another of his quotes should have been, there is no maverick molecule. He is thanked in the liner notes of a Van Halen album. It was also mentioned by Alice Cooper in a 2010 Good Morning America concert in the streets of New York City as one of Cooper's influences and teachers. Vince, as R.C. called him by his real name, read R.C.'s books and once attended a Ligonier conference in San Diego. After the conference, Cooper saw R.C. waiting to start a round of golf, as was he. They were not scheduled to golf together, but Cooper asked R.C. if he'd like to golf with him. The shock rocker and the theologian, golfing. It was the way R.C. combined things that made him so rare, the way he combined complex ideas with clear teaching, the way he combined philosophy with theology, the way he could weave in Aristotle with the presentation of the Gospel. At a Ligonier Christmas gathering, he delivered a lecture on the history of science that ended by drawing all eyes to the Incarnate One lying in a manger. He combined a mischievous sense of humor with a somber view of God. He knew what it was to tremble and rejoice. His circle of friends included the platform speakers of the Reformed and Evangelical world and, by R.C.'s own description, the heathens with whom he played golf and ate lunch at the golf club. Both sets of friends spoke of the gaping hole left when R.C. died. Oh, rare he was. People were drawn to the teaching. R.C. wanted people to have a vision of who God is. He did not want people to have a vision of who R.C. was. Nevertheless, the man behind the teaching is important. In considering his legacy, we first consider the man. The Man Knowing R.C. the person involves understanding the role of family in his life, his sense of humor and love of laughter, his passion, his compassion and caring nature, and his hobbies. From the time he was little and waiting at the top of McClellan Drive to wave in the relatives coming for a dinner or a holiday, R.C. loved family. At the Ligonier Valley Study Center, R.C. not only invited students into the classroom, he invited them into his family, to his dinner table. In fact, even the classroom in those early days was his living room. He loved his family and was generous and kind. Vesta said how people over the years would thank her for sharing R.C. with them. She said that the family never felt like he was shared. She said that when she or the kids needed him, he was there. Of course, his traveling schedule meant missing birthdays and some of those milestone moments in a kid's life. R.C.'s daughter, Sherry, put it simply, I had such a kind, fun, loving dad who was absolutely crazy about me. R.C.'s sense of humor is legendary. Al Moeller loved to speak at conferences with R.C. Not only did he enjoy hearing R.C. and catching up with his friend, Moeller knew that R.C.'s presence at the speaker dinner meant the time would be far more enjoyable with exponentially more laughter and jokes. Stephen Lawson called R.C. the king of the one-liners. Others tried to keep up with him but couldn't, his sense of humor was known not only to his circle of friends and associates, but also to all the students who watched him over the years. He joked, and he loved to hear jokes. He teased, and he loved to be teased. R.C. would want us to see the theological reason. Only one who has had their sins forgiven and has escaped the wrath of God can know true joy in life. As evident as R.C.'s sense of humor, So evident was his passion whether it was his passion for god and holiness or his work or his family rc was like luther full tilt like samuel taylor coleridge's ancient mariner who felt compelled to grab the wedding guests by the arm and tell his tale so too rc was compelled to tell the tale of the holiness of god and the gift of the righteousness of christ that passion and drive propelled him even into his late 70s as his body waned. R.C. put it this way, I owe every human being I know to do everything I can to communicate the gospel to them. There was also compassion. Vesta observed he liked people. He thought people were interesting and he knew he could learn from them. I particularly appreciated that he could talk to a construction worker or the president of a Fortune 500 company and he was comfortable doing both. But he remained himself. He didn't switch between two personalities with regard to how he approached people. Guy Rizzo, one of those golf club heathen that was led to Christ by R.C., knew R.C. for 25 years. He said that over all of those years, R.C. never acted in a condescending way. Those who worked at Ligonier or were able to work with R.C. on projects would express how kind the Lord was to give them that time with R.C. Finally, in understanding the man in terms of the importance of family, his sense of humor, his passion and his compassion, seeing his hobbies rounds out the picture. Sports, painting and drawing, reading biographies, watching classic movies and contemporary ones, music, listening and playing piano and violin, and putting together puzzles, These were R.C.'s hobbies, not to mention dieting. Any diet fad that came along could likely swoop up R.C. The Scarsdale diet gave way to Atkins. There was wheat belly and probably one of R.C.'s all-time favorites, turkey bacon. The hobby that most think of when they think of R.C., however, is sports. It actually might be incorrect to refer to sports as a hobby for R.C., Throughout the first 18 years of his life, sports dominated. It was his beloved Pirates and Steelers in the black and gold. He never forgot watching his first baseball game, Pirates 5, Reds 3. It was playing baseball in Mowry Park or hockey on the ice rink on the reservoir. It was all about sports. Golf started in seminary and did not end until November of 2017, 55 years on the golf course. Highlights include his hole-in-one, which was a hole-in-three. He teed up for a hole over a water hazard. He swung, and the ball ended up in the lake. Stroke one. He took the penalty and teed up again. Stroke two. From the tee, he swung, and the ball went on the green and into the cup. Stroke three. That is how you have a hole-in-one, which was a hole-in-three. R.C. said one of the best days of his life was in 1985 at the Gator Golf Day, a University of Florida event that pairs a foursome of golfers with a pro. That day, R.C. played with his longtime friend Wally Armstrong. R.C.'s team won, and R.C. outshot them all, even the pros. When R.C. golfed, he competed against the course, or so he would say. Sports was, in many ways, more than a hobby. He transferred the grit and determination of the athlete to his work as a theologian. When he would speak, it was game time, and he was ready. He was the kind of player who left it all on the field. So it was with his teaching and speaking. Art was a hobby for a time. He enjoyed it, but he did not enjoy the cleanup. When he finally moved on from painting, Vesta said it was not because he lacked the time or inclination... It was because he lacked a sink. This discussion of his hobbies and personality points to R.C. as a real person. George Grant explained it well. His down-to-earth, unpretentious, and fervent character adorned his genius with peculiar grace. Grant notes that was the first impression. He adds, over the 35 years that I knew him, that first impression has only been reinforced a hundredfold. This measure of the man also informs us of his method. The Method R.C. valued precision, clear communication, courage and conviction, and a populist approach. Anyone who ever drove R.C. knew he valued precision. He did not even need to look at the speedometer. He knew when someone was driving even a decimal point above the speed limit perhaps rc learned precision from his accountant father or his meticulous typist mother he learned it from the lockstep precision of the elders coming forward for the lord's supper at pleasant hills he did not learn theological precision there that he learned from gerstner and from his past masters augustine aquinas calvin Turtin, edwards hodge and warfield these were scientist theologians they had to be precise The opposite of precision is sloppiness. When it comes to the knowledge of God and his gospel, there simply is no room for sloppiness. Another opposite of precision is the more subtle studied ambiguity that R.C. fought against his whole life. Perhaps studied ambiguity was a far greater threat than blatant error. With the former, people could let their guard down and subtle drips become waterfalls over time. R.C. valued precision. He also valued clear communication. He took the complex and made it clear and understandable without distortion. He made it compelling. He was persuasive. He also valued conviction and courage. He had that note card on his desk that said, To preach and teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. That was the source of his courage. Like a prophet of old, or a reformer of the sixteenth century, R.C. had a boldness because these were God's words, God's teachings. He proclaimed that word above all earthly powers. John MacArthur, his longtime foxhole companion, said, The passion that motivated R.C. was his love of the gospel and his zeal for making sure the message is proclaimed without compromise or confusion. Michael Horton said, R.C. did not have much time for cowards in matters of great moments. The great movie Tombstone was required viewing for his friends. He was consistent in his courage and conviction. They say that you know what a great leader is going to say on a subject because he has a track record of dogged consistency. That was true of R.C. He held his convictions with integrity throughout his life, even if he found himself at the O.K. Corral. Finally, he was a populist. He could lean over the lectern or the pulpit and, with his wide and warm smile, look you in the eye, even if you were in a crowd of thousands. He was looking at you, talking to you, teaching you. He could do the same through the video camera of a teaching series or over the radio of a Renewing Your Mind broadcast. He connected. This explains why so many felt that they lost a friend when they heard that R.C. died. They never met him, but they felt like they knew him. RC took his message to the people because that's what the Reformers did. Andrew Pedigree makes this observation of Luther the Reformer. Luther was a cultured and purposeful theological writer. He wrote fine Latin, and his Latin works measured up well against his adversaries. But it was his German writings that redefined theological debate and reshaped its audience. The decision to make the case against indulgences with the 1518 Sermon on Indulgence and Grace was, as we have seen, momentous. And this proved to be only the first of several hundred original German compositions, many like this, short, terse, and phrased with a directness and clarity that was a revelation in itself. Luther called the German people to engage in serious questions of salvation and Christian responsibility and they responded in huge numbers. In piquing their interest, the medium, Luther's choice of words and style, the accessibility of those ideas briefly put, the visual signals of pamphlets with an increasing design homogeneity, was in many respects as important as the message. Luther took the message to the people. He did not patronize them, but communicated to them clearly and free of technicalia. He knew they needed to hear truth well told. When R.C. admired Luther for being a populist reformer, this is exactly what R.C. was admiring. These elements can also be found in R.C.'s own work. He, too, knew the power of words and phrases. He made serious ideas accessible to the people. He was an educated theological writer and could contest ideas in the academy, but he went straight to the people. These truths of the doctrine of God and the doctrines of grace bring light out of darkness, life from death. His precision, clarity, conviction, and populist message were the method. The content can be seen in his contributions. The Contributions Depending on when you looked in on R.C.'s life, you might have a different answer as to his contribution to the Church and the Christian tradition. If you were to look at 1978, you would say his biggest contribution was in the fight for inerrancy. If you were to look at 1994, or the Christology Statement of 2016, you would say that it was justification by faith alone. Others might say apologetics. Others might say he was one of the few Reformed people who found Thomas Aquinas rewarding. Others still would say no one else could talk about Aristotle's idea of cause in a sermon, entitled What is the Gospel? When others hear people say R.C.'s contribution was philosophy or inerrancy, they simply do not understand. They would say that he reminded the Church that God is holy. All of these reflect aspects of R.C.'s legacy. His contributions include all that follows. Inerrancy R.C. planted the seed for the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, He was ICBI's first president and a writer of significant ICBI material. Before and after the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, R.C. never wavered on the doctrine of the uncompromising authority of Scripture expressed in the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. Classical Apologetics In R.C.'s copy of Volume 1 of Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctinic Theology, he is written in, That he is, what he is, who he is. To know that he is refers to Turretin's observation, First we may know that he is, with respect to existence, against the atheist. Belief in God is rational and demonstrable. As Turretin writes on the next page, Nature proves the being of God. Turretin learned it from Aquinas, who learned it from Aristotle. Aquinas and Turretin bequeathed it to Edwards, Edwards to Hodge and Warfield, Hodge and Warfield to Gerstner, and Gerstner to R.C. Natural theology was essential to R.C.'s apologetic. In his conclusion to The Consequences of Ideas, he wrote, As I enter the twilight years of my life, I am convinced that we need to reconstruct the classical synthesis by which natural theology bridges the special revelation of Scripture and the general revelation of nature. Such a reconstruction could end the war between science and theology. The thinking person could embrace nature without embracing naturalism. All of life, in its unity and diversity, could be lived quorum Deo, before the face of God, under His authority and to His glory. Natural theology is roundly rejected by the presuppositionalists and by fideism. R.C. saw both as dangerous, not only for apologetics, but also for the reformed classical expression of the doctrine of God. He pushed against presuppositionalists for ceding far too much ground. R.C. was of the tough-minded camp of apologists. If someone said there were contradictions in the Bible, he would sit with them and resolve each and every one they could think of. Sometimes, when they ran out of objections, he showed them alleged ones and then proceeded to resolve those. The Holiness and Sovereignty of God R.C.'s two classics published back-to-back, The Holiness of God and Chosen by God, could be seen as presenting the two attributes of holiness and sovereignty. On the one hand, they do, Both were eclipsed, and R.C. consistently through the decades of his ministry shone a spotlight on them. They are more than simply two attributes of God alongside a long list of others. For R.C., these were ways to express fundamentally in a palpable way the being of God. We can go back to Turitan, what God is with respect to his nature. More on that follows. But these two books and these two reverberating themes throughout the works of R. C. are a distinct and necessary contribution. God is taken far too lightly. The book title by Edward Welch expresses this poignantly: When people are big and God is small. Knowing God in His holiness and sovereignty is the corrective and rightly reverses the order. Justification by faith alone and imputation. While R.C.'s key contributions of justification by faith alone and imputation are linked to the controversy surrounding Evangelicals and Catholics Together, E.C.T., in 1994, the emphasis on this doctrine may be seen across the decades of R.C.'s work. R.C. commented that E.C.T. was the most painful part of his whole career. E.C.T. caused division among friends, but to R.C., too much was at stake to compromise or yield. In the opening monologue, 1517, of the CD Glory to the Holy One, R.C. recalls Luther's courageous stand for justification by faith alone and imputation. Then R.C. declares, In every generation, the gospel must be published anew with the same boldness and the same clarity and the same urgency that came forth in the 16th century Reformation. This issue with ECT had everything to do with the clarity of the gospel. R.C. saw ECT as promoting studied ambiguity, the old nemesis. When it comes to the gospel, ambiguity will not do. Only clarity will. Erwin Lutzer testified, I cannot think of R.C. without bringing the righteousness of Christ to mind. While thinking about the impact of R.C. Sproul on his own life and ministry, John Piper connects the doctrines of justification and the doctrine of God. For me, it was this faithfulness to biblical texts and this high view of God's sovereignty and holiness that made R.C.'s fight for the imputation of Christ's righteousness so credible and compelling. The bigger and more central and more sovereign and more holy God is in our eyes, the more clearly we see our desperate need for justification by faith alone. All of these contributions arc back to what he so clearly said of himself, identifying as a Reformed classical theist. He believed theology is for life. He believed theology is ultimately doxology. To know God is to worship God. He believed God is holy. We are sinful. Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice who clothes us in his righteous robe. He believed all of this and R.C. was passionate about all of this. That is the sum of his life's ambitions and work. Harkening back to his bachelor's thesis at Westminster College, R.C. entitled his Right Now Counts Forever column, published in the August 2011 issue of Table Talk as The Unholy Pursuit of God in Moby Dick. He starts extolling the novel's place. The great American novel was written more than a 150 years ago by Herman Melville. This novel, the one that has been unsurpassed by any other, is Moby Dick. R.C. declares the novel's greatness to be found in its unparalleled theological symbolism. It is a great novel because it tells of the greatest epic, the story of God and man. R.C. believes that Ahab's pursuit of the whale is not a righteous pursuit of God, but natural man's futile attempt in his hatred of God to destroy the omnipotent deity. He then ends the article by contrasting the unholy pursuit of the Holy One and the holy pursuit made possible only by experiencing the sweetness of reconciling greatness. R.C.'s final paragraphs follow. I believe that the greatest chapter ever written in the English language is the chapter of Moby Dick titled The Whiteness of the Whale. Here, we gain an insight into the profound symbolism that Melville employs in his novel. In this chapter, Melville writes, But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness, and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul, and more strange and far more portentous, why, as we have seen, it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in things the most appalling to mankind. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt? If the whale embodies everything that is symbolized by whiteness, that which is terrifying, that which is pure, that which is excellent, that which is horrible and ghastly, that which is mysterious and incomprehensible, does he not embody those traits that are found in the fullness of the perfections and the being of God himself? Who can survive the pursuit of such a being if the pursuit is driven by hostility? Only those who have experienced the sweetness of reconciling grace can look at the overwhelming power, sovereignty, and immutability of a transcendent God and find their peace rather than a drive for vengeance. Moby Dick tells in fiction what Isaiah chapter 6 and the story of Uzzah record in fact, inspired, inerrant, infallible, divinely-revealed fact. When R.C. wrote this piece for Table Talk, it was 40 years after his bachelor's thesis. From 1961, you could stretch back to 1957 and his first conversion, and 1958 and his second conversion, until 2011, there was a dogged consistency to the theme that was central to R.C. He did not let up from 2011 through his death in 2017. From his very first reading of the Old Testament in September, October, November, and December of 1957, he spoke of the God who plays for keeps. That was the God he studied, that he longed to know, the God he proclaimed to his classmates, to his girlfriend Vesta. It was the God he served, loved, and worshiped. In the months of September, October, November, and December of 2017, he was still studying and longing to know more of who God is, proclaiming who God is, and serving, loving, and worshiping God. R.C. changed his mind on a few things over the course of his lifetime. He once joked that at one point or another, he held every possible eschatological view. He changed his mind on the meaning of day in Genesis chapter 1. But on the doctrine of God he never shifted, never rethought his position, never capitulated. For almost sixty years he said one thing, it's all about the doctrine of God. And what one must understand here is that it was not just the doctrine of God, but it was the doctrine of God as taught and held in the historic Orthodox Christian faith, which is also a synonym for the Reformed classical tradition. The issue here is the goodness of God, not the shallow, casual, low view of God. That will not do. And it is not simply a high view of God. This is the highest view of God. Anselm started his proslogion with the word humunkio, little man. He went on to call God that which is greater than can be conceived. Conceive of great, God is greater still. When Augustine penned his magisterial confessions, the very first word is, Magnus, great are you God. This gets to the heart of R.C.'s theology and the heart of his legacy and contribution. To see it, we need a contrast. That comes in the now-famous sociological analysis of Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton's 2009 Oxford University Press book, Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of America's teenagers. Sifting through reams of research, they concluded that the view of God of American teenagers could be summed up as moralistic therapeutic deism, God being a cross between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. This is precisely the shallow view of God that led to Ahab's downfall. But it is not exclusive to the view of America's teenagers. It is shared by adults in America and elsewhere, inside the church and out. This is what R.C. was pushing against, fighting against, all those decades. R.C.'s teaching was the antidote to moralistic therapeutic deism, or any other view that falls short of the Bible's portrayal of its author. A consuming fire, a whirlwind, a flame in glory, blinding in purity and holiness. As John Piper observed, This was R.C.'s goal, a heart that is stunned and humbled and captivated by the transcendent greatness and purity of God. Jared Wilson speaks of the influence of the holiness of God. I read this seminal work for the first time while in college. Sproul sent me to Rudolf Otto, and I learned about the experience Mysterium Tremendum, which helped give shape to all my adolescent fear and trembling. The book, The Holiness of God, seemed to hold the key to unlocking what made Sproul so blessedly different from even the most well-spoken celebrity preachers. He was obviously a man who walked in the graciously disturbing orbit of the true numinous. Wilson points us to a significant aspect of Sproul's legacy, that of his impact on the young, restless, and reformed movement. Colin Hansen coined this term for a Christianity Today cover story, September 22, 2006, later developing the story into his book, Young, Restless, and Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinists. Hansen's own journey involves R.C. He mentions how, while in college, an older student took me to hear R.C. Sproul preach. I didn't go looking for Reformed theology, but Reformed theology found me. Hansen speaks of Christian teenagers growing up learning about Buddy Jesus, needing to learn about Father God. And they did from R.C. Matthew Barrett speaks of that constellation of people who fathered and mentored the young, restless, and reformed, MacArthur, Moller, Packer, Piper, and Sproul, adding, It was Sproul that sat you down at the table to eat a theological feast. He continues, Whether it was the holiness of God, The Doctrines of Grace or Sola Fide, Arcee was proof that if we don't start thinking theologically, our Christianity will be nothing but a balloon full of hot air. And he was proof that it could be done not only in the academy, but in the pews. The Young, Restless, and Reformed movement was a testament to the long labors by Arcee and others. For decades, he faithfully planted the seeds of the doctrine of God and the doctrines of grace. R.C. read the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was led by his faithful teachers to Augustine, to Aquinas, to Calvin, to Turretan, to Edwards. What he found in these Mount Everest's of Christian history is that all of them were intoxicated by the greatness of God. When he won the Jordan Award in 2007 for his lifetime of publishing, R.C. said, I wanted to help people recover the giants of the past. He found them all to have a common substance, namely, an overwhelming, passionate, soul commitment to the transcendent majesty of God. That was the message that captivated me; that is what I have wanted to communicate through my teaching and through my writing more than anything else. It was the message he found in the Reformers (here is what Roland Baton said of Luther, bringing together the wrath of God and the work of Christ): "In the Lord of Life, born in the squalor of a cow-stall, and dying as a malefactor under the desertion and derision of men, crying unto God and receiving for answer only the trembling of the earth and the blinding of the sun, even by God forsaken, and in that hour taking to himself and annihilating our iniquity, trampling down the hosts of hell and disclosing within the wrath of the all-terrible, the love that will not let us go. No longer did Luther tremble at the rustling of a wind-blown leaf, and instead of calling upon St. Anne, he declared himself able to laugh at thunder and jagged bolts from out the storm. This was what enabled him to utter such words as these, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Lest we forget the Genevan Reformer, at the 2009 Ligonier National Conference, a year which marked the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth. R.C. remarked on Calvin's observation that we tend to keep our gaze on earth, on the horizontal. But what if we lifted our gaze heavenward? That is what R.C. ultimately heralded. Lift your gaze to heaven. Think about who God is. The particular way R.C. expressed the godness of God was holiness. It was missing from the moralistic, therapeutic deist culture. It was missing from many sermons. Holiness also was a brilliant stroke because it instantly led to sanctification. We are to be holy as God is holy. We who have come to the thrice-holy God, Sanctus, 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 are to pursue full-throttled sanctification. R.C. cared about what you know but he wanted what you know to transform how you live. Ultimately, he wanted it to transform lives. The holiness of God is the main story of R.C.'s story. It is the target to which every arrow of his life was sent. This theology, the knowledge of God, leads to doxology, the worship of God. R.C. said that he first learned that theology is doxology from Dr. G.C. Berkauer. Berkauer learned it from Aquinas. Theology, Aquinas said, is taught by God, teaches about God, and leads to God. We are led from the study of God to worship Him. The beauty, majesty, and splendor of God demands our worship. Psalm 27, verse 4 declares, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. R.C. would want to make sure we do not miss the word beauty. He once said, I am moved by beauty. I am moved by order, coherence, by excellence. I think God must be exquisitely beautiful. We join the seraph throng and declare, Holy, Holy, Holy. That is the singular contribution of R.C. Sproul, that led him to manifold contributions on the battlefields of inerrancy in the late 1970s, apologetics in the face of rampant secularism in the 1980s, and justification by faith alone and imputation in the 1990s. John MacArthur said, Where there was a battle, R.C. was there. He was there because he was, like his heroes, enraptured with the transcendent majesty of God. The Books As mentioned, in July of 2007, R.C. was awarded the Jordan Lifetime Achievement Award from the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. James Dobson remarked how R.C.'s books kept the flame of orthodoxy alive, adding that his writings reveal and promote a commitment to the historic Christian faith. Johnny Erickson Tata spoke of how R.C. could make complicated theological issues not only understandable, he could make them come alive. Various Christian leaders spoke of the influence of his books, and rather interestingly, they spoke of the influence of R.C.'s books on them personally. Of his more than 100 books, R.C. identified a handful that he hoped would prove useful for the church, by God's grace and will, for decades to come. There were his two classic texts, The Holiness of God and Chosen by God. Additionally, R.C. singled out Not a Chance, Classical Apologetics, Truths We Confess, The Consequences of Ideas, and Knowing Scripture. He mentioned this last one because it was about teaching people how to read the Bible, making its importance obvious. Vesta has a special place for his children's books. She explains why. R.C. would always say, if you don't deeply understand what you're teaching, then you can't simplify it without distorting it. The more he thought about that, the more he thought he'd like to write children's books. Of course, having grandchildren was part of it. He also hoped that parents who read his children's books would understand the Bible better. Writing was a significant part of R.C.'s professional life from the time he published his first book, The Symbol, in 1973. He filled page after page of yellow pads that were then typed up by his secretary and sent off to a variety of publishers. Many of these manuscripts have wholly written chapters without edits or cross-outs or false starts. When Mrs. Buckman sent the manuscript for One Holy Passion to Bruce Nygren, R.C.'s editor at Thomas Nelson, she wrote in the cover letter, This is a red-letter day for me, sending you Dr. Sproul's manuscript for One Holy Passion. I hope everyone who reads it will benefit from it as much as I have in typing, reading, and rereading it. Even after his death, R.C. has had and will continue to have books published, as there are teaching series and sermon material that will likely continue to make its way into book form. R.C.'s writing was simply an extension of his teaching. The goal of his teaching was that people would understand the Bible better and consequently have a better knowledge of who God is. That was the goal of all his books, that ultimately by reading them, whether the subject was theology, apologetics, biblical studies, or the Christian life, people would come away with a better and deeper understanding of God's Word and a more intense passion for it and a desire to obey it. Many people came to know R.C. through two primary ways— by listening to him on the Renewing Your Mind program or by reading one of his more than 100 books. As they met R.C., R.C. wanted them to meet and to know God. The Institutions In addition to being known by his books, R.C. is known as the founder of Ligonier. Today, Ligonier Ministries is an international teaching ministry with boards of directors in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, producing teaching materials in a variety of formats, in multiple languages, distributed through a variety of media. R.C. started Ligonier with a budget of $85,000 and a handful of staff in 1971. In 2021, Ligonier's 50th anniversary year, the staff totaled around 125 employees, RC's specific contributions through Leganire include teaching series and the long-form teaching episodes, Table Talk magazine, the Renewing Your Mind radio broadcast, the Reformation Study Bible, and conferences. RC was a teacher, and at the heart of his work are the many, many teaching series he produced. Many of his books, but certainly not all, grow out of material either directly or indirectly from his teaching. His commentaries, taken from his St. Andrew's Sermon series, are a notable exception. The Renewing Your Mind episodes are teaching series. From the beginning, Ligonier employed new technologies to record and distribute the teaching series. Attention was given to quality. R.C. believed the form should reflect the content. He also believed that the form should not distract from the teaching. An emphasis was put on premium video and sound. After all, you needed to be able to hear the definite lines being thrown onto the chalkboard. The other element of R.C.'s teaching is that, with minor exceptions here and there, he taught timeless truths. He avoided the hot take on the current issue. He believed that the timeless was the most timely, the classic the most urgent for the day. That means that much of his teaching will likely live on. Of course, the video is dated, especially the hair, but also the clothing styles. Remove that and the content is fresh. This became a hallmark of Ligonier's teaching as a whole. Very rarely does Ligonier venture into the timely or take on a theological news reporting persona. R.C. believed that classic Reformed theology always has something significant to say to whatever situation one wakes up to. The teaching series were the heart and soul of R.C.'s productivity. Table Talk began as an eight-page monthly newsletter on May 7, 1977. It was actually four 11-by-17 sheets folded in half and center stapled. Initially, it was produced monthly. Then, from 1980 until 1988, it was published bimonthly, though with much more content in each issue. In 1989, the format was changed, keeping articles and advertisements for Ligonier materials and conferences but adding daily devotionals, which ended with a brief application referred to as Quorum Deo, How to Live Before God. Along the way, Table Talk transitioned to a smaller format and full color glossy paper. It is not uncommon for Table Talk readers to frame covers, as some have stunning artwork. Chief among them may very well be the commissioned artwork for the August 2011 edition a painting of Moby Dick by Liesl Jane Ashlock. The artist painted a much larger edition that was installed behind R.C.'s desk in his office at Ligonier. R.C. kept up his Right Now, Counts Forever column through the decades. His first column, in the very first volume, May 7, 1977, was The Pepsi Generation. His last column was The Problem of Forgiveness, published posthumously in the February 2018 issue. Renewing Your Mind went on the air in 1994. The third time proved a charm for R.C. and radio broadcasts. His first broadcast had been launched back in western Pennsylvania from the Ligonier Valley Study Center. It was called the R.C. Sproul Study Hour. The second was called Ask R.C. It began airing in 1986. Today, Renewing Your Mind is heard on terrestrial radio on stations across the United States and around the world, and it is heard on the Internet. Testimonials pour into Ligonier from all sorts of people and places as to the impact of renewing your mind. Augustus Nicodemus Lopez was one of them. For a decade, he served as Chancellor of Mackenzie Presbyterian University in Sao Paulo, a university of over 35,000 students. He lived 16 miles away from the university and every day commuted on his Harley-Davidson, listening to RC on the headphones inside his helmet. Dr. Sproul was my companion on the motorcycle daily. R.C. was inducted into the National Religious Broadcasters, NRB, Hall of Fame in 2016. The next year, he spoke at one of the keynote sessions at Proclaim 17, the 2017 NRB International Media Convention, held in his hometown of Orlando, Florida. R.C. spoke on, of course, Luther and Scripture and Justification, making a point that the uniqueness of the Reformers was in stressing as the essential teaching sola scriptura and sola fide, scripture alone and justification by faith alone, R.C. put the emphasis on alone. R.C. was introduced by Family Life's Bob Lapine. In his introduction, Lapine recalled the first time he heard R.C. on the radio teaching on the holiness of God. Then he noted how R.C. also taught the great themes of the Reformation, the event everyone was celebrating in 2017. Lapine noted by stressing these Reformation themes for over five decades of ministry, R.C. almost single-handedly reintroduced them to the church in our generation. In 2018, a Spanish edition with Jose Pepe Mendoza as the translator began airing as Renovando tu Mente, the flagship of Ligonier's Spanish language outreach. RC would see the Reformation Study Bible as one of the key initiatives of Ligonier. It was first published as the New Geneva Study Bible in 1995. It was re released as the Reformation Study Bible in 2005. An entirely new edition was released in 2015. This new edition had significantly enlarged and rewritten book introductions and overhauled textual notes, with a significant number of additional notes added. The theological articles from the previous edition were replaced with all new material from R.C. There were also 14 extensive articles in the back, written by a constellation of Reformed scholars. There's also a hefty portion devoted to the creeds, confessions, and catechism of the ancient church and from the Reformation. It is over 2,500 pages in length. R.C. quarterbacked the project from start to finish. R.C. liked to say that while the RSB is called the Reformation Study Bible, our hope for it is that it serves as a catalyst for Bible study reformation. From his notebooks back in the 1960s and early 1970s, R.C. has many outlines and teaching notes for various Bible study courses. In many of them, he starts off with this line, It's not enough to read the Bible. We must study the Bible. The RSB Condensed Edition was produced in 2017. As part of Ligonier's international outreach efforts, the German edition of the RSB was released in 2017, the Korean edition was released in 2017, and the Spanish edition was released in 2020. Efforts are underway for Portuguese and Arabic editions. Having looked briefly at the Teaching Series, Table Talk, Renewing Your Mind, and the Reformation Study Bible, we are left with conferences as the last specific contribution of R.C. to the church through his work at Ligonier Ministries. Conferences were part of Ligonier from the old Study Center days. Conferences were also part of R.C.'s ministry even before he started Ligonier. On Labor Day weekend of 1965, R.C. spoke at the College Briefing Conference, held at the Ligonier Camp and Conference Center, only 12 miles away from the future site of the Ligonier Valley Study Center. The conference was held to reinforce students theologically and spiritually as they headed back to mostly secular colleges. R.C. met Tim Couch there. Later, Couch would join the staff with R.C. at Ligonier. They were friends for life. It was already noted how significant R.C.'s teaching was at the Young Life Conference in Saranac, New York. Conferences were more than just speaking to the gathered masses. They became like family reunions for R.C. and Vesta, as they saw old friends and forged new relationships. R.C. also believed that concentrated times of trusted teaching could significantly equip and encourage believers, sending them back to their churches to serve. R.C. wanted the conferences to run smoothly and to ensure that the teaching and other platform times were free of distraction. Again, he believed the form should reflect the content. Much preparation happens behind the scenes at Ligonier leading up to and during a conference so that the students, as R.C. wanted them to be called, could focus on the teaching. R.C. also enjoyed the time with the various speakers who came to the conferences. Meals and times together were highlights for him, filled with much laughter and some teasing. One moment of much laughter happened when Sinclair Ferguson recalled a humorous moment from a past event when speakers had gathered one evening for dinner. While they ate, Ferguson recounted a time when he was rather tired when he went up to speak at a conference. In his fatigue, he intertwined the stories of the parable of the Good Samaritan with the parable of the prodigal son. Once he started entangling the details of the two, he couldn't stop. As Ferguson recalled that train wreck of a sermon and a horribly embarrassing moment, R.C. could not stop laughing, guffawing, actually. He soon was in pain. Stephen Lawson was present, and he called his brother, a doctor, who was able to come on the scene immediately. R.C. had laughed so hard, he'd cracked a rib. There was a lot of laughter. There was also a lot of praying. And encouragement. Johnny Erickson Tata, a frequent speaker at Ligonier, recalls a time of RC's kindness to her husband Ken. When I was battling stage 3 cancer in 2010, RC and Vesta prayed earnestly for me and my husband. During my chemotherapy treatment, RC wanted to encourage Ken in the midst of his non stop caregiving routines. Knowing Ken was an avid fly fisherman, R.C. sent my weary husband a G. Loomis Stream Dance 5-weight 10-foot rod. It was the best on the market. You should have seen Ken's eyes get wide with delight and amazement as he opened his gift. I will always treasure R.C.'s thoughtfulness with that precious gift. It was such a guy thing to do. He obviously knew what would brighten my husband's heart. The study cruises were another feature. R.C. loved being at the cruise destinations and walking in the footsteps of his heroes. He also enjoyed the times with people over meals and on the buses. R.C. reached tens of thousands through his books, broadcasts, and teaching series. On the tours and at the conferences, he could see students face to face. In addition to Ligonier, R.C. founded two other institutions, St. Andrew's Chapel and Reformation Bible College. St. Andrew's Chapel faithfully continues the work started by R.C. Sproul and that small group of families. The church has a variety of ministries serving the congregation and Central Florida and beyond through missionary efforts. Reformation Bible College offers a Bachelor of Arts in Theology with majors in Biblical Studies and History of Christian Thought, an Associate's Degree in Theology, a degree completion program and the foundation year program leading to a certificate a summer's evening rc could look out his office window at ligonier and see saint andrew's chapel to the left and reformation bible college to the right he loved that these were the institutions that god used rc to found institutions that rc hoped would be faithful and God willing, carry on in the service of the church, institutions that would proclaim, defend, and contend for the gospel. All three, Ligonier, St. Andrews, and RBC, encircle a pond. Central Florida is full of ponds and lakes. Many of them, even the large ones, are shallow, providing a perfect home for Florida's wild reptilian population and exotic birds. Centuries-old live oaks draped in Spanish moss cover the campus, as do magnolia trees and the palms that stretch into the sunny skies. Boxwood and podocarpus hedges and philodendrons, tis, and hibiscus complete the tropical setting. Central Florida is flat and sunny, rather different from the rolling foothills of the Alleghenies of western Pennsylvania. There's snow to shovel up there. R. C. liked shoveling sunshine instead. He did joke, though, about the grass in Florida, saying that he had to spend money to grow down in central Florida what he used to kill up in western Pennsylvania. Whenever the Sproles went north, they enjoyed stepping on real grass. R.C. and Vesta had homes for brief times in different places. Boston, Bosom in the Netherlands, Philadelphia, Cincinnati. But his two main homes, the two places, were central Florida and western Pennsylvania. He did not miss western Pennsylvania winters. When it did get relatively cold in Florida, he would say, if this keeps up, I'm moving to Florida. But it's hard to compete with those cool summer evenings in the Ligonier Valley. Maples, oaks, tall pines, chestnuts, cedar, and scattered crabapple trees all stand guard around the study center. The cool breeze floats down from the tree-covered dome rising above Pine Lodge. There's a pond, a volleyball net on a grass court, and a softball field. The summer sun makes its long descent over Stone House. It's been a full day of lectures and teaching, conversations and meals. After dinner and as twilight sets, people file on to the softball field. J. Alec Machir is there. He's been lecturing on Isaiah. An Irish biblical scholar, Former vicar at St. Luke's, Hampstead, and Christ Church, Westburn, he's the principal at Trinity College, Bristol. But this evening, he's wearing a crisp white t-shirt and is playing in the outfield on a hillside in western Pennsylvania. His mind is at work not on a Hebrew phrase, but on how to transfer the skills of cricket to the game of softball. And there's a New Testament scholar there, too. He could exegete with the best of them, but he's not much of a threat on the ball field. People watching wonder if he even knows whether a softball is stuffed or inflated. Ligonier staff and students round out the teams. Children watch for a moment, then find their own games to be far more interesting. It is the kind of evening you think will never end, and you hope it never will. And R.C.'s playing shortstop. He's calling out nicknames. Art the dart, you missed that one! He's teasing, kidding with a mischievous, joker-sized grin, all the while making plays. Working, teaching, discipling, caring, loving, praying, playing, joking, laughing. Another day at Ligonier. But he's on the ball field now. His eyes scan the spectators in their lawn chairs. He spots Vesta and gives her a wink.
0: That was an excerpt from R.C. Scroll, A Life by Stephen Nichols. Check out the full audiobook available directly from Crossway for 50% off. To learn more, visit crossway.org/plus. That's crossway.org/plus.